Welcome back, friends, to episode 45. Yes, 45 of the Banished to the Pen podcast, a group baseball blog produced by diehard fans of the podcast, Effectively Wild, a daily show from Baseball Perspectives. I'm your host, Ryan Sullivan, editor-in-chief of NatsGM.com and the Baron of All Baseball Podcasts. This week, I am happy to have joining me Alec Denton and Nick Koss, to uh, stalwarts of the Banish to the Pen family. Uh, welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here, Ryan. And uh, first and foremost, as I do, I just want to thank you guys for uh, for coming on the show. And uh, let's start where we start every week. I know you guys have been on the show before, but maybe somebody missed you. Um, let's do a little introductions. Uh, who you're a fan of, uh, where they can find your work, if you want to share your day job, Twitter handle, all that fun stuff. Um, Let's start uh, alphabetically with Alec, please. Thanks. Uh, hi, Ryan. I'm Alec. I've been on the podcast a few times before. I'm a Michigan native and a fan of the Tigers. I've been living in Atlanta for a few years and uh, working here as an attorney and taking in plenty of Braves games. Very, very cool. Only one year until that new stadium, right? <laughs> yep. That'll be a complete mess. We're going to talk some Atlanta Braves later on in the show, absolutely. So uh, now, Nick say hello to the internet as they might say hey everybody um i'm nick Koss. i've been on this podcast a couple of times before um i've written for banners to the pen before um born and raised in western new york i'm now a student at northeastern university which is great for me because i am a huge fan of the red sox um and yeah looking forward to getting to some games this year definitely Last time to see the man, the myth, the legend, David Ortiz, before he goes out. So, uh, just off the top of my head, Northeastern's got a really good baseball prospect this year in the draft. You, you should definitely take in a couple of college games. Oh, I definitely, definitely plan on doing so. They've de- I actually they've got a top seventy-five prospect. Uh, I forget if it's a pitcher or an outfielder, but uh, definitely check them out. They've got a good program. Nice. Yeah. No, the baseball team here has usually been from just off the top of my head what I'm remembering usually pretty good I mean nothing you know nothing special but they also play some really good baseball so you get a lot of good athletes out of the northeast for sure so well uh thanks guys for jo- coming back on the show and joining me uh, we got a, a bunch of topics to roll through even though it's I don't know a week before pitchers and catchers but it's been a little slow in the baseball world uh, first place I want to start this week is um, we got to give credit to uh, one of our fellow banished to the penners, so to speak. Uh, Darius Austin has been a, a definitely come on the show a couple of times. Has been a real integral part of the banished to the pen family, and he got called up, I guess, to the major, so to speak, and uh, was on effectively wild. Was it this week or was it the end of last week? I think it was this week. I think it was. All the shows blend together. They do so many podcasts nowadays that. Uh, <laughs> They blend together, but I, I just wanted to first and foremost ask you guys if you had heard Darius on the show and uh, a little bit of uh, just your impressions. I thought he was tremendous. Uh, um, yeah, I thought he was great too. I loved, first of all, just the topic they were talking about was very interesting. But he was very well informed, brought up some great points. I think um, I think Ben Ben and Sam made a really good call at having him join the show. So I was glad to hear him, and I was 
you know, really happy for him because as someone else who has also done some work with Banished to the Pen, it's nice to see someone who works really hard get noticed for really good work. So, Yeah, I want to give a shout to Ben and to, I guess it was Steven on that podcast, but I want to give a shout to those guys for recognizing the hard work that we're doing here. I, I think it's really nice that they give us a little rub, so to speak, every once in a while. So, uh, Alec, kind of your thoughts? Yeah, I wasn't able the episode i'm a little behind on my listening right now but i did read darius's article and i thought it was one of the best things on our site um just so well researched uh clearly he had done a lot of work on it and went pretty deep into the archives and then to turn around and tell a a coherent and interesting story about a, a baseball team that was 65 or 70 years old um in a, such a compelling way was was really an enjoyable read and as I think we'll get into looking at some of the, the nominees for the best baseball writing in 2015, uh, there's no question in my mind that his piece deserves a nomination for next year's awards. Yeah, that his piece was tremendous. I, I thought uh, just the research and the depth that he had to go into and then exp- and then trying to convey that in, in a podcast was tremendous. I mean, not to mention I could listen to Darius, you know, read the phone book with his accent. I mean, I just I find him <laughs> hilarious. So, um I don't really have too much more to say about it. Just great job. And like I said, the way to represent us well, Darius, you know, tip of the cap, job well done kind of thing. Congrats to him. Um, congrats to him as well. So, All right. Let's uh, now we'll move forward. Let's get uh, let's talk a little present business, if we might, so to speak. Uh, Alec, I want to give you the floor uh, a little bit. And I, I want to talk about your piece that you've done. Once again, I think it was either early this week or late last week. Uh, you're going to have to help me. But you did a tremendous uh, job putting together kind of the Sabre, I don't know, the best research pieces, the best columns of the year. And I, I don't want to step on anymore. I just want to give you the floor to talk about it. Sure. This is actually something that I've done. I did last year and uh, went through what, what Sabre does is, is they put out awards in three categories for the best writing for the past year in contemporary baseball analysis, contemporary baseball commentary, and then a historical section for historical commentary and analysis. And they nominate five pieces in each category, and you can vote and voting. I assume this uh, podcast will probably post on Monday the 15th, which is the deadline for voting. And uh, you can vote either through Sabre's website, through Baseball Prospectus, among other places. We've got a link to it uh, on Banish to the Pen as well. But happy to run through just sort of my favorites in each category and a couple others of notes, see if you guys happen to have read those pieces. Uh, and what I did for folks who haven't or want a quick look is I just went ahead and summarized each of them uh, to get a quick feel for what they're about. But in terms of contemporary baseball analysis, I think the clear, uh, what I thought was the clear winner and should be the clearly the most influential piece, one of the most influential pieces of baseball analysis that I think we've all read, certainly last year and probably for the last few years, was uh, the Jonathan Judge, Harry Pavlidis, and Dan Turkenkoff's uh, DRA, deserved run average uh, research they did for Baseball Prospectus. And for those who, who may not have heard about it, it's attempting to provide a comprehensive replacement for ERA. We all know ERA's flaws. And so what DRA has done, building upon some of the catcher framing metrics that some of those guys built the previous year, 
is to look at how many runs did a pitcher really deserve to give up. And they look at all phases of the game. How much credit does the pitcher get for uh, the frameability of a pitch to defensive metrics to controlling the running game and boil it all down into one very easy to understand number, uh, deserved run average. I think in terms of describing what has happened in the past, it's, it's difficult to imagine something that we have right now that's more complete and, and accurate than deserved run average uh, or DRA. Um, and uh, so I, anyway, I just thought that was an incredibly important piece of research that those guys did. And in terms of something that we can see working its way into the mainstream of conversation and broadcast the way I think on-base percentage or OPS have, I think DRA is as good a candidate as any to to make that jump as well. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I thought that was I, I saw a presentation by Jonathan at uh, Saber Seminar, which we were talking about off air, kind of coincidentally. Uh, fantastically interesting and smart man first and foremost but this is a really neat project that these guys put together i mean harry is is obviously and dan turkenkoff is now actually working i believe in baseball himself so i mean these are three guys that are incredibly smart and this is something that really could it's a lot better than dips it's a lot better than era and some of the other things that we've had they think it's better than fip and some of the other metrics as well and this really could change I mean, I could see in five years where we have DRA on the TV rather than maybe ERA, maybe 10 years, but uh, very, very smart where they're taking this. And, and I was very impressed by this piece. I, I, it's it's something you got to read twice, I think, because it's very heady. But very these guys, tense, for sure. Yes. But these guys are uh, really smart, and this is definitely the new generation. And, and, and the other point I want to make is it's been a long time since we've had kind of a pitching – Breakthrough. We've seen a lot on the hitting side with, you know, kind of the bat speed and some of those things. We've seen a lot with catcher framing. We haven't seen it with pitching in the last, like I say, since maybe dips or fit, take your pick. Uh, uh, this is really the next frontier. I think you nailed it with th- this should win the award, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that this is really a in terms of what we had before it it is not a small step forward it is a pretty big step forward so it, i mean i i think you guys have hit the nail on the head so i'm just going to say i'm in total agreement i think it should win by a pretty comfortable margin and, and for those of you out there that worry about this headiness of it jonathan judge just started studying statistics a year and a half ago so just to get i had he told me that directly from his mouth so if you don't think that you can do it, you can do it. So just pretty amazing how far he's come in a very short time with numbers and, and analysis. So once again, pat on the back to Jonathan. Yeah, very impressive work. One other one that, that I thought was uh, enjoyable and interesting in that category, Jeff Sullivan, as he often does, will look for little nuggets, especially uh, as pertain to Mike Trout. And he did a piece for Fangraphs. Um, the, the obvious conclusion there's no easy way to gain an advantage over Mike Trout if you're a pitcher. Uh, we all know that for pitchers, going to an 0-1 count is generally a very favorable uh, thing. It's a favorable count for what's likely to happen in the rest of the plate appearance. Um, and as it turns out, there's a very easy way to get to an 0-1 count on Mike Trout, which is to throw a first pitch breaking ball for a strike. He essentially he, he has swung at one of them in his career. Uh, so you're guaranteed to go to 0-1, and, 
the problem is that the trout has, a, of course, a fantastic WOBA weighted on base average, but it's even better when he's in an 0-1 count after first pitch breaking ball strike. So you thought you had an edge, and in fact, you're worse off than you ever were before. Yeah, because I guess he assumes you're not going to double up on the curveball, so he eliminates that. Mm. Yeah, just uh, more ways to be impressed by Mike Trout. That was a great. That was a great piece. I really enjoyed that. I read that this summer when it was published. That was a great read. Yeah, I mean, it's just Mike Trout's just an otherworldly, otherworldly talent, and just. <laughs> It didn't surprise me when I read it, but I was sat there. I was like, "Wow, this is you can't, you can't do what you're supposed to do against this guy, and be and get any sort of little tiny edge. It's, it's incredible. You know, Mike Trout's a great player. Jeff Sullivan's a great baseball writer. So, you know, perfect combination right there. Yeah, and imagine if you don't flip that first pitch curveball over. Now it's oh, now it's one oh, and you're not going to double up on the curve now. Now you're throwing him a fastball. That's just Mm. Uh, Alec, if I could, I'd like you to uh, maybe briefly mention the Godfather's piece as well in this category, uh, Ben Lindbergh, because I thought his piece deserved uh, maybe a, a, a mention as well. Uh, no doubt about it, Ryan. Uh, ben, as we all know, a ongoing co-host of the Effectively Wild podcast, editor-in-chief emeritus of Baseball Prospectus. Uh, last year was writing for Grantland, the now defunct site. This was Grantland's only nomination in the awards for this year. Ben's now at 538 is my understanding. But what he did in uh, mid to late October was take a look at some playoff trends. And we all know that, or it's at least intuitive, that in the playoffs, uh, given the way pitchers are used more aggressively, that pitching velocity would be up in the playoffs, and that's not too surprising. But even still, uh, Ben had noticed what he called a startling uptick in postseason pitch velocity in last year's playoffs. And having noticed that, what he wanted to do was take a look at the teams, the other teams in the playoffs, to sort out uh, which team was best positioned to combat this extremely high-velocity pitching environment. And It may sound less surprising now that we know what happened in last year's playoffs, but Ben pegged uh, the Royals, and the reason that he pegged them was because uh, what he had discovered after he looked at the pitch velocity environment was that he discovered that the best way to combat high velocity is not with high power, but with high contact rates. And, of course, uh, Kansas City, known for its contact hitting, what I thought was an interesting takeaway ultimately from that, and in terms of the way we think about baseball going forward from uh, a situation in which, of all teams, the Kansas City Royals have made two consecutive World Series appearances and are coming off a World Series win. A lot of people talking about the inefficiency that they exploited in terms of their pitching and their defense, uh, but it turns out that at least in terms of their success in the playoffs, it may be due to something that people are talking a lot less about, which is their contact hitting. And in fact, that's something that a lot of uh, smart baseball folks sort of lampooned Ned Yost for in terms of his bunting. Uh, but obviously connected with that is, is just a contact hitting approach that uh, from Ben's research may have been the reason that, that Kansas City was able to go all the way in last year's playoffs. 
I thought that was a terrific piece that he wrote, and, and I think that you're starting to see some of that bleed into to other teams and their philosophies. I, I can specifically point to the Nationals signing Daniel Murphy and trading for Ben Revere this offseason, definitely trying to get more contact-oriented than they were last year, and I think that's a direct result of what we've seen from the Kansas City Royals and, and to a you know an unbelievably smaller degree, you know Ben's piece. So I, I think there's something to be said for that. I thought it was a terrific read. I've read it now three times. I, I can't recommend it enough. Nick, and Nick, your thoughts? I just I it was a great piece. I loved how he kind of went from researching this pitching trend and then managed to bring it back all the way to construction and do so in a way where you were following him every step of the way. Um, I think that's why um, Ryan. I think you called him just a little bit a little bit ago. You you called him the Godfather, and I think that's why he deserves that nickname. So he great piece, and hopefully you know there'll be lots more where that came from for this upcoming year. Yeah, fantastic writer and an even better guy. I, I can't say enough nice things about Ben Lindbergh. So hopefully we can get him back on the pod soon. If he's listening. Right. Yeah. And I think I'm Ryan. I'm glad you, you brought up that piece uh, because I think the idea of exploiting these inefficiencies connects with uh, moving on to the next category about contemporary baseball commentary. Uh, the, the piece that I voted for in this category was was also a baseball prospectus article by Meg Rowley, who's a uh, who's new to baseball prospectus within the last year, um, and she wrote about. Uh, the homogeneity that she sees in in the front offices in terms of not gender, race, and sort of intellectual background. We all know that a lot of these folks are bringing in young Harvard guys that, you know, I mean, the fact that the, the I've joked with my friends here, the fact that the Brewers have a 30-year-old GM right now is like, where did we go wrong? I mean, we... <laughs> how are they, the young folks? But, they're, but a lot of them are coming out of the same backgrounds. And so what what I thought Meg did such a nice job of is pointing to the the ignorance of diversity of all sorts of different uh, senses of diversity in front offices as something that's ripe for exploitation. I mean, if everybody's doing the same thing, that's not really gaining an advantage. And so uh, I thought that her, her piece was came out of sort of a somewhat academic concept and social concept but put it into baseball terms in a very effective way that uh, I think we can all recognize sort of the danger of homogeneity in an approach. The fact that, and getting back to that Royals piece, the fact that the Royals succeeded with their approach to hitting defense, uh, rather contact hitting, high defense, and um, their use of relief pitching, if everybody else runs out and does that, all the teams are going to be the same and they will, there won't be an advantage there. In the same way, that uh, we know that there's you know, the advantage of intelligence in the front office, but if everybody's trying to execute the same exact plan, is it really an advantage? So I really enjoyed Meg's piece uh, for that, both conceptual and practical application. Yeah, first and foremost, I just want to say Meg is, is a tremendous asset at BP. I know that she's relatively new over there, but I've really enjoyed her work this year, and she brings kind of an uh, an avenue or a type of writing that they don't have over there there she's touching a little bit more on the social uh, kind of concepts and and maybe that's not the right word but she's talking uh, she's not talking about prospects is what i'm trying to say so i really enjoy her work first and foremost and two uh she didn't touch on it as much in this piece but i, I think that 
we sh- we need to be focusing on trying to get more females into this game as well. Like you're, to build off that point of homo, uh, you know, geneity, it's, it's all the same. You go to the, you know, you look at the front offices and it's all, you know, upper class white guys. And, and, you know, that's not, maybe that's a great pool to start picking from, but there are a lot of really smart people out there, females, African-Americans, pick the wherever we want to go. I mean, I, I think it's, it, her piece really touched on something where we are not having the type of, we're not getting the smartest from everywhere that we can because we're picking from one pool. And I thought that it was just a tremendous reminder that it, we need to do a better job. And, and when I say we, I mean all of us trying to include everybody into the game of baseball so we can get the biggest, the brightest, the smartest, and everything else to make our game the best. So uh, just tip of the cap to Meg, and I'm rambling now, so I'm going to throw it to Nick. <laughs> I was I was gonna say pretty much the same thing you did, especially um I love Meg. She's doing a great job. I love reading her pieces because just because it's it, she makes great points and it's just it's different than the majority of what's out there, but it's no less important. Um, and then I guess just kind of getting to the topic of the piece, just the fact that a long time ago, you know, it was kind of former players in the front office but then you know kind of the you know this new you know the new wave of guys came in where you know they had these degrees from you know top universities and they really didn't have any experience you know um in professional baseball before they came into the front office so it's always to gain an edge you always have to keep the ball rolling and always be willing to think outside of the box realizing that the box is going to change it's going to expand and there is a lot of quality people out there and you know baseball front offices need to tap into the pool of everyone and not just segmented so you can get the best talent in your front office so you can get the best talent on the field so yeah but it was it was a great piece, and I doubt this is the last time we're going to see one of her pieces up for an award. It's just, it's fantastic. And Alec, if I could in this category, I'd like you to talk about Alexis, and everybody knows that I cannot pronounce people's names, so I'll let you do that. But I'd love for you to talk about her piece, because it's kind of a similar vein, and I thought her piece was fantastic. Yeah, I, I, uh, Alexis uh, Brudnicki is Thank how you. I guess it's pronounced. She wrote a piece called I'm Different, I'm the Same for the Hardball Times uh, just back in November. And w- what she talked about, hers was more of, I interpreted it as more of her sharing her story. Um, she is a woman. She grew up a sports fan and an athlete and always found herself sort of in a male-dominated world. Uh, and as she turned her love of sports into a profession, which for her was sports journalism, uh, she began to realize that on the one hand, she had this deep knowledge and experience that she could impress superiors with and gain professional opportunities. um, And that allowed her to fit in with a group of colleagues that were almost entirely male in terms of their gender. Um, As she matured within that world, she said that she realized that she, she sort of began to confront some gender issues in terms of gender diversity and the absence of women in the profession. And, um, and that, was, that was sort of the gist of her story. Um, she expressed concern that if she did speak out about these um, 
to subjects that it might threaten her sort of job stability and her finances in that way. But she ultimately concluded, I, I like this quotation, I included it in my summary, that uh, it's worth it all because I love baseball. Baseball is my passion and it has become my life. Um, and I thought that was certainly inspiring for someone who, who has to, in, in one way, knows where she belongs, but in another way, it sort of has to cut her own path. Yeah, I, I enjoyed her piece. I thought it was a great insight into, you know, she is different in that regard. And I don't, and that's not the right word that I want to use, but, you know, everybody in that, you know, press box or scouting or, or in baseball is, you know, once again, I go back to a white male, typically in a polo shirt, and, you know, she's not that. And I, I thought it was a great insight into, you know, just what she, her experience is and, and through her kind of her first person lens, so to speak. I thought that was a great piece. Going back to my original point of we need to be more uh, accommodating and nice and inclusive and whatever the words are to, to get more females, to get more diversity into our game. Yeah, and I just, I kind of like, and maybe this is just because I'm a college student, you're on a college campus, and they make sure you're socially aware and, you know, really try to make you, you know, want to help out social issues. And, you know, diversity in sports is a huge social issue. And sports overall is just, you know, not just baseball, but since we're on a baseball podcast, I'll frame it in the baseball context. People are starting to look at baseball's, you know, role in society as a whole because it's a multi-billion dollar, um, you know, industry. So just to see these pieces come out and see that, you know, people aren't afraid to tackle these issues, it's great. And it's just kind of in my head, I'm like, you know, my peers at the business school, some of the most brilliant people, some of the people who are doing the best work are, you know, females, are women, are, you know, minorities. And it's just for me just to see and, you know, baseball as a whole, people calling for kind of the classroom experience to be put into the industry. I think it's great. I think we're going to see some really good work and really good, you know, people start to make their way into front offices and the game as a whole is going to be better. So I just, I love how, you know, baseball writing's kind of made its own little corner where we can openly talk about baseball and how it fits into society. So great, um, great year for this category, I think. Yeah, well said. Let, let's move ahead if we can. Uh, let's get to the final category, Alec, and uh, present, so to speak. Sure. I was. I have to confess, I was a little less impressed uh, with the nominees in the historical analysis and commentary section, although it's also the area probably of, of least knowledge or interest for me. So that may be my own bias. Well, you uh, gotta be I, you gotta be interested in the topic, I would think, in some of these. It, it, to be fair, but you know, if if you don't like Jason Giambi, you're probably not going to like that piece, kind of thing. Yeah, and I and I think that's that's right. And uh, the one I ended up choosing was Alex Remington's piece for the Hardball Times, uh, anniversary of a myth, the Knickerbockers' most famous game. And and what he did was uh, he went back and, and looked at obviously baseball history is shrouded in myth. 
Alexander Doubleday, Cooperstown, the true history of the game and all that sort of thing. And, and what he found was that the, this famous game, uh, June 19, 1846, uh, purportedly between the New York Knickerbockers and a team called the New York Nine that took place in Hoboken, uh, was sort of recognized as one of these first ever organized games, first written rule book, all these sort of things. And what has happened over time and under closer scrutiny is that it turns out a lot, a lot of that wasn't true that it wasn't the first for this, that baseball history goes back much farther. There's connections to baseball in England, predating uh, any of the development in America. Uh, but what he did find was that nevertheless, this game does have importance just because it wasn't the first uh, or something like that. There was still a lot of progress in terms of the codification of the game and attitudes towards the game that the, uh, the New York Knickerbockers in particular as this organized team helped sort of cement as things went forward with the game's development in this country. That's very... Go ahead, Nick. I'm sorry. Um, I was going to say kind of my favorite quote from Alex right up the... And it was at the end where the umpire enforced a six-cent fine payable on the spot for swearing. And it's just... <laughs> I mean, I just... I just really enjoy kind of, you know, reading that, seeing that little nugget down there and just thinking that back in the 1800s that was that was what happened it would also be funny to think that there would be a guy like you know drops a ball or makes a really bad play who just in his head is like you know what i need to you know i need to curse so you know here's you know here's the six cents it was worth it (laughs) bryce harper might be broke if that was still in play today Even without counting for inflation, too. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, that's fine. That, that reminds me of a piece that uh, that Russell Carlton did this past year at Baseball Prospectus, where he tried to quantify. So I can't remember exactly what it was, but he was attempting to quantify sort of the ability for athletes to let off steam when they make a mistake yeah. by cursing or shouting out or something like that. The issues remain the same in some ways. Yeah, Russell is a must-read at, at BP, absolutely everything he does. That that was a great piece, too. That's a good point. Um, are there any other in this category you want to touch on or highlight? None other in this category. I think uh, I, want, I did want to briefly mention uh, in, the, in the previous category, just because I think it sets up an issue going forward, a uh, very fresh issue, and give a shout-out to my fellow Georgia attorney, Nathaniel Grow, who writes over at Fangraphs. Uh, he's been doing a lot on the upcoming CBA negotiations, and he looked at the issue of the players' declining share of overall MLB revenue, both in terms of baseball history, but also as compared to other sports, uh, where the MLBPA and players are getting the lowest share of revenue. I don't know the historical parameters, I don't recall, but um, that that is going to be, of course, a central issue. I think we probably all recently read uh, Sam Miller's piece on baseball prospectus going through the current CBA agreement, uh, that's redundant, collective bargaining agreement, um, and the emphasis, of course, on compensation that that document and how it's apportioned reflects it surely is going to be a central issue on the, on the upcoming negotiations this year. I thought uh, Nathaniel's argument for a salary floor um, was an, certainly an intelligent economic argument. 
whether that's w what ultimately comes out, um, who knows. But I think definitely he's signaling an issue to watch in terms of the labor negotiations that are going to be taking place in 2016. Yeah, that was a great read. And, and goodness, he almost wrote it a year ago now, but it's still very timely and, and is definitely something to go back and check out. I agree. This next CBA is going to be fascinating because they're going to it's going to change a lot of things. Like you say, the players need to start making more money. And, and I'm using air quotes there. The international draft is going to be up for for discussion and perhaps you know expansion could be uh, discussed as well i mean I, I think this could be a very interesting discussion with first time i think tony clark and his first negotiation yep yeah i just um i love reading nathaniel grow just because as a business student i'm kind of interested in the sort of writing the topics he writes about but it's going to be very fascinating to see what's going to come up in the cba and also, there is there just kind of is there pressure on both sides to and we don't have to really get in this, but just my big thing I'm watching for is there pressure to avoid any sort of labor unrest to where both sides kind of make compromises more in the interest of that versus just the interest of you know what's really you know what they both really want um but anyway it was uh it was a great piece um i think alec you mentioned sam miller's piece he wrote that came out a couple days ago i i just i loved it because just all the little quirks in the cba so but yeah overall i think very relevant writing and i would suspect we're gonna see a nathaniel grow piece in this category next year yeah, I think that's probably right, Nick. And I, I guess I would just say, uh, I mean, we could obviously spend a whole podcast on the CBA, and it's definitely something where I think we're at the point where we want to see some concrete things coming forward uh, to see what, which direction it's going to head. Very, very well said. Very, very well said. Anything else you want to cover on the, in this kind of discussing your piece? I think we've covered it pretty well, but I want to anybody you want to thank? Anything that we should cover? No, I think that's it, Ryan. I'll just say if this podcast posts on Monday, if you're listening to this on Monday, February 15th, you still have until uh, 11.59 or something like that tonight. There's still time to vote. So head over to Sabre.org or to our website, Banish to the Pen. Hopefully we can get a link up to that. There's a link at the bottom uh, of my post and at the top to vote. So I'd encourage you to do that and get involved. Yeah, I agree. And, and even further to that point, I, I would you, encourage you to go check out Alex's piece in general. I mean, there are 15 columns that he put together and did a nice summary on each. And, and maybe you're not interested in each of the 15 columns, but I bet you you're going to be interested in 10 to 5, 10 to 12 of them anyways. So, uh, Alec, I just want to give you kind of a pat on the back and say good job with the article. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's found a couple of pieces that I've, I've enjoyed reading. So great job. And uh, I hope we do it again next year. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I plan on it. It's, it's fun and a fun way to kind of remember some favorites and find some ones I missed from the past year. And uh, maybe what was your favorite of the 15? Maybe that's the best way to wrap up this this discussion. Um, my overall favorite, I mean, my overall favorite uh, probably was either of, of the two that I picked in the first two categories, either the DRA article or the article on diversity in the front office as the sort of new inefficiency to be uh, exploited and just the need for diversity to lead to new ideas and bring new ideas into baseball so one of those two probably my favorite nick your favorite um i would i think all of them were pretty good i would i guess go with ben Lindbergh's 
just because um, I think it was, again, well-written and really got you from point A to point B with um, some great stuff. But overall, I I think you could say any of these 15, and I would not have a, not really have an argument against any, against any of them. Yeah, I'm going with Ben Lindbergh specifically because I want him back on the podcast. So come back, Ben. <laughs> But uh, in all seriousness, it was a tremendous piece. And uh, congratulations to all 15 of those guys for just putting up you know, great work and uh, allowing us to kind of research it and read it as well and learn from them. So, I think you made a great point before we came on air that there's really a lot of good stuff out there. So I think we're kind of in a golden age, quote unquote, of you know, really good forward-thinking baseball writing. So it's always great to be able to see that you can list out 15 pieces and all of them are are some really good work yeah and the truth is is you could throw a dart at at most of the work done at the fan graphs and baseball prospectus and and do pretty well just finding interesting stuff so um let's let's i want to transition a little bit if i can i want to talk some uh, boston red sox a little bit and i also want to get some atlanta braves talk with uh, alec but uh let's start with the red sox here and Nick, I want to tag you in, so to speak. Uh, kind of the state of the Red Sox. They were awful last year, as you know, and busy offseason. They've turned around a fair amount, although it's been a little quiet the last six weeks or so. Kind of where are the Red Sox now? Um, I think, personally, I am more excited for the start of this season for any season since 2011. Just it's the team's looking great. You have Bogarts and Betts, two young guys who look like they're going to be good for a really long time, hopefully in Boston. Um, you have the Christian, Christian Vasquez-Blake Swihart catching tandem that's looking um, pretty good as well, although they have some less major league experience, so the jury's kind of still out on them. Um, Pitching-wise, they brought in David Price. I think he's going to have a good year. They revamped the bullpen, which I which I really liked how um, that Dave Dombrowski went about doing that. Um, overall, I think, you know, whereas last year they might have been projected to get first place, and I was like, eh, they're not, they're really not that good a team. I think this year they're going to be contending right down to the end. So I'm, I'm super excited, and... I didn't even mention yet that it's it's the last year of Big Poppy. I think he has one good season left in him. We'll see. But, I mean, overall, there's just so much good going on with the Red Sox right now. And as a bonus, no more Hanley Ramirez in left field. So, things, things are looking pretty up for the Red Sox, I would say. I got to say, as a fan, I'm disappointed with no Hanley in left, but that's just me. Uh Alec, let me. Uh, you have any questions for Nick or, or about the Red Sox? Let's start there. Yeah, well, I look at the Red Sox and I see a lot of familiar faces, having grown up a fan of the Tigers, uh, now paying a lot of attention to the Braves with Dombrowski, Price, Kimbrell. This is certainly a stacked Red Sox team. I'm just curious, sort of looking backwards, Nick, what you think? I mean, the Red Sox over the last five years have kind of been doing this yo-yo thing. They'll be great one year, horrible immediately the next year, immediately contending the next year. What do you generally chalk that trend up to? And do you think that with Dombrowski at the helm now, the 
uh, sort of trajectory is going to flatten out from here, or at least smooth out? Um, I think, um, I think a lot of what happened was Ben Charrington was kind of stuck in this place between, you know, they had a great farm system, still do, and you want to give that time to develop, but you know, there is no off years in Boston. You don't get to say we're taking step back for a year or two. There's a pressure to win every year. So I think kind of the yo-yoing was just, you know, he was running all around the ship trying to plug a leak and another one springs up. So he's got to go plug that. And I mean, the ship more often than not, the ship kind of sunk. So um, now though, it seems you have a good young core. You've supplemented it with, you know, you've used some of that farm system to get a Craig Kimball to make the trade with Seattle to get Carson Smith in to be a, you know, great early late inning guy out of the pen. I don't know if that made sense or not, but that was one of the better so trades. Overall, nobody, that was one of the best trades nobody talks about this winter was Miley for Carson Smith. Yeah, and you could debate whether Miley should have been the one to go or should have been one of their other pitchers, but. Just overall, I'm confident for the first time in a while that the front office has a clear plan. They're following that plan, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Dombrowski said, we need a starter, closer, fourth outfielder, and he checked them off the list before the winter meeting. So it's, I mean, they they seem to kind of be wandering around for a while, but I'm very confident in, in the direction they're going in now. Um, I would also encourage um, to kind of get a really a better picture of that. Read the um, Red Sox essay in the BP annual. It was great. And I think really kind of Alec would have answered your question probably better than I just did. So, but overall. I'm only on page. Uh, I'm only on, not quite to it yet. I'm almost there. I'm just finishing up the Orioles. So I will look forward to reading that soon. But I definitely appreciate your answer made a lot of sense to me. I just wish uh, being a Tiger supporter that Dombrowski would have figured that closer thing out a couple of years sooner than he did. Uh, my question for you is, and I like to ask this of everybody, is what is the biggest what is your biggest fear? What is the biggest weakness on this team? Like, you know, kind of Alec mentioned, this team has been a yo-yo the last few years and, and when things don't go well, it really goes off the rails. Where, where is the weakness on this team? Uh, I would think it's the back end of the rotation. Um, the rotation looks a lot better because you have David Price up top, clear number one, and then you know you have the same pitchers as last year, just slotted back one. But you know if Rick, you know Rick Porcello needs to pitch like he was more in the second half of last year, not the first half. Um, Joe Kelly will be interesting to see if he can, you know, contribute at all. Um, Clay Barkholtz. He's he's always going to be a question mark until he can get through a season without going on the DL. So the rotation's still iffy, and I think if the Sox make a run into and through the postseason, it's going to be off of the offense and then the bullpen shutting down opponents from the seventh inning on. So. Um, I think if there was one area I could see a midseason trade, barring, of course, injury, I would not be surprised to see at the deadline Dombrowski go out, get a starter to solidify the rotation. 
I mean, I, I could ask you questions all day on the Red Sox, but I, I, just for brevity's sake, my last question is just your thoughts on Castillo this season, Rosny. Is this going to be the breakout year, or are we going to see a lot more of Chris Young kind of covering for his rear end? Um, I think, well, I think Chris Young might, he might end up having to cover for both Jackie Bradley and Castillo. So those are really two um, kind of question marks for those guys. And for Jackie Bradley, it's a do or die year. If he doesn't produce this year, he's a defensive first outfielder, you know, kind of fourth outfielder option. But Castillo, I like... I liked what I, some of what I saw from him last year. I think that he, maybe just after seeing being in the majors, kind of seeing some of the pitching, he might be able to break out. But I think I definitely think it is a plus for him, though, um, that you know he gets to play in left field. So defensively, there's not too much there to worry about. Tell Hanley um, that. <laughs> <laughs> but he, I think. I think he's going to do better than last year, but I don't think he's going to break out in like a Mookie Betts type of way. I think he's going to show some solid growth, solid moving forward, and show that you know he's someone that's going to be a solid, not spectacular, but solid guy for the Sox going forward, and he's capable of being a one of Betts's outfield mates. So, Alec, anything else? Nothing else. No, that was very helpful. All right. Then my final question I ask all of everybody is um, give us a win prediction for 2016 for your Red Sox. Oh, boy. I was I was I was hoping we were going to get on to the Atlanta Braves before you asked that question. But um, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm going to go 92. I think they right. I think it comes together. F- I think it comes together for them, and I think they get to 92 wins. All of right. course, when it's August and they're on, and they're not even above 500, you can um, play this back to me and do the appropriate amount of laughing. So, well, that, that's pretty much what our job is here. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, 92 and 70, <laughs> you're putting for the Red Sox. Okay, um, I'm going to move on now if I can and uh, move ahead. And uh, tag Alec back in, so to speak. Um, Atlanta Braves talk. I want to get into this a little bit. Uh, One of the more fascinating franchises right now, and we were talking a little bit off air about where they're at. Interesting offseason for them, I think. I'm not sure we all saw them trading Simmons. That was was interesting. And and they've brought in a lot of talent. I just kind of your thoughts on the state of the franchise. Yeah, and we'll have hopefully uh, working with Nick Strangis to put up a our season preview, which should be going up the same week this podcast uh, is posted. So I'll try and give you a preview of the preview that we're working <laughs> on. But Braves, of course, are doing uh, both a literal and figurative rebuild uh, very heavily as they're getting ready to move out of town, out into the suburbs, into their new stadium, and they are uh, – hit the reset button in a pretty big way going back to Jason Hayward, Craig Kimbrell, the Upton brothers, and of course, most recently Simmons, now Shelby Miller. A lot of the recognizable names are playing elsewhere. Uh, and in the case of Dan Ugla, unfortunately, we're still being paid by the Atlanta Braves, but nevertheless, uh, the team is, the lineup is in great flux, but 
uh, with the idea of seriously rebuilding this team thematically doing it the way that the great Braves teams of the 90s were built and that is on young highly talented pitching and there's no doubt whether it will work or not that that is the approach that the current leadership is taking uh, moving just about everything they can for pitching prospects. I thought Mark Bradley's essay in the BP annual put that all into a pretty clear picture that we have now that this is the move going forward. Assemble as many pitching assets as possible, see what develops, and as that goes forward through this year, and probably as we spoke before we started recording, the next couple years it's going to take. Uh, begin flipping those prospects to build up your talent uh, at your other positions. Um, one of those other positions, of course, is shortstop. And while Simmons is gone, uh, they did acquire in that Miller trade Dansby Swanson, number one overall pick out of Vanderbilt, my alma mater. So very excited to see Dansby, who's coming home. He's an Atlanta area native and clearly has the potential to be in the Chipper Jones Freddie Freeman, face of the franchise mode, if he continues to develop the way it seems like he can and turn into an everyday uh, starter at shortstop or somewhere in the infield. You mentioned a bunch of uh, of things in there that I want to touch on. First and foremost, why are Julio Tehran and Eric Ibar still on this roster? If they're trading everybody else. Yeah, I think uh, Ibar came over in the Simmons trade, correct? Definitely correct. And I know they need somebody to man the position, but, I mean, he feels like a league average player that you could swap for another pitching prospect. Maybe, but as you said, at some point you can't have a pitcher play in second base or third base, so you've got to have some warm bodies out there. Uh, You've got Adonis Garcia, who has some streaky power. Um, But, you know, I mean, you've got to run out a, a a full roster, and so I think that's why he's there. They also, I I think they believe in this theory of sort of veteran leadership, um, which makes sense when you have so many young guys is, I mean, to the point where 20, what is he? 25 year old Shelby Miller is too old for you. Right. Uh, They bring in Markakis last year, AJ Pruszynski. um, And so I I wouldn't be surprised if they see Ibar in a similar role of stability, professionalism, letting guys see, what it is to be a big leaguer and someone who can play for 10 years or whatever in the league and what kind of daily habits you have and you need to develop to do that. Um, So I'm guessing they see those guys as part of their development plan. Uh, I don't recall off the top of my head what Tehran's contract status is, but in the same way that they've got guys in the fielding positions who have a little bit more experience, Tehran had a bad year last year or at least a bad first half of the year. I thought Mark Bradley's essay really pointed out uh, how he in particular got it together um, down the stretch and started to show some glimmers of of what he was was truly a breakout ace in 2014. So I think they've got something in Tehran, you know, in the same way that the Cubs bring in a John Lester or whatever. To have a veteran uh, on your pitching rotation has a lot of value, and I think – Tehran can be that guy again. There's no reason to think he can't. Um, so, I, I mean, eventually will they move him? Maybe. But, uh, again, I don't know where he is in his contract or when it may, makes sense to do that. But I think he's more defensible than, than or, or at least as defensible as Ibar. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, Alec, go ahead. Yeah. 
or pardon me, oh, Nick. Sorry. sorry. Um, so I kind of going off the Eric Ibar thing. Um, the Braves. It's kind of known that the Braves want to contend in 2017 when they're opening their you know new suburban stadium. Does Ibar being there mean there's no chance we see Dansby Swanson up? up in Atlanta before the September, you know, before the September roster expansion? Or do you think they're going to keep him down for a year, let him develop so he can, you know, hopefully contribute to that 2017 contender? I think that's a that's a that's definitely a question to watch this year, Nick. I mean, on the one hand, it, it certainly seemed like from last year that basically all options were on the table and the team wasn't shy about bringing guys up. Um, that said, looking at the way the Cubs handled things with, for example, Chris Bryant, keeping him down to control service time, which speaking of CBA negotiations, definitely will be an issue in those discussions. Tremendous uh, point. They want to try and tamp these guys down like Chicago, the Cubs, and Houston have done with some of their younger guys. Um, so I don't know how that will play out in terms of the timing. I'm guessing if he really excels, he didn't get a lot of playing time last year yeah, in the Arizona he, system, but uh, he may see some action. It wouldn't shock me at all. I, I was going to, I think he got hit in the face with a ball at the end of the year, which kind of cut his season short, if I, if my memory recalls. Yeah, but, I think it's something like that. Yeah. But I would, I, I'm going to take the opposite approach. I've watched Dansby a lot in college. I'm kind of a prospect nerd, and I, I think he needs time. I mean, I think this is a guy that probably starts at high A Lynchburg for them, and needs a half season there probably goes to double a and needs a full season and i don't think he's as quick to the majors as as perhaps some people think coupled with the fact that this team's probably going to win i don't know i don't want to steal your thunder 70 games i i just don't see any reason to to move you know to push dansby forward that much that fast particularly with ibar's presence still on the roster yeah, I don't think I don't think there's a rush. I just don't I don't think that uh, it would surprise me, given that they seem to really be tinkering. And um, so he, he may, you know, he may make an appearance, but if he doesn't, nothing would surprise me. Yeah, I would be. I I, I I'll buy you a beer if he's up in at least before <laughs> September. And, and I'm not saying that's snarky. I just I, I would be surprised. That would be really meteorically fast. I think for Dansby and, and yeah. Albies is ahead of him in the NAA. I mean, that would be. That's true. Yeah, and I think he's he, he is a better prospect in terms of right now, uh, today. Defensively, sure, absolutely. 1,000%, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess you kind of mentioned that the Braves are bringing in all these young pitching prospects. Um, I don't I don't want to put you on the spot here, but is there one in particular you think that, you know, was, you know, was a really good gift for them or one that's you think is going to make his mark on the majors sooner rather than later? You know, I'm still trying to learn a lot of their names, Nick, but I think that's an absolutely fair question. You know, I think a lot of people like uh, Toussaint, who they they seem to, you know, there was some interesting writing about Arizona in the past about the sort of odd way they were going about making transactions and People, I think a couple pieces over at Fangraph speculating whether people were going to start to begin fleecing the Diamondbacks for some of their prospects. The Tucson transaction looked like that. You know, I think some of like, uh, is it Max Fried or Freed uh, seems to offer a lot of promise. Just I'm not a healthy, real yeah. prospect guy like Nick, uh, rather like Ryan is, so I might not yield to him on this question, but those are a couple of the guys whose names 
have stuck around and seems like they have some more immediate potential. My guy if he, on that list would be Sean Newcomb, uh, the major yes. piece that they got back in the uh, Simmons trade out of uh, a, a New York school, small school, 15th overall pick. I watched him a couple times in college. The guy is just, he's awesome. I mean, he's got a four-pitch mix. He's a big physical kid. Fastball command is a little less than what you might want. That's probably his big weakness right now. But, I mean, this guy, he's got mid-90s heat from the left side. Two legitimate breaking pitches and a changeup. I mean, he's a 2-3 to me unless something really goes wrong. I mean, I, I think I think the world is Sean Newcomb. I think he should have been a top-10 pick in the draft two years ago. Yeah, they said Newcomb was a was the number one prospect in the Angels system, um, and certainly fits right in at the top of the Braves system. I think Paul Ryan. He's great. Aaron Blair's another pitcher too. He may not have the ceiling of some of the guys, but this is a guy that should also slot in as a mid rotation starter and not a long time. You could see him in twenty sixteen. I, I think that's a guy that could definitely spend some time in Atlanta this year as well. Cool. And I forgot about Tukey. I mean, that's hilarious. That I, I just completely forgot that they added him. I mean, wow. There's a lot of folks there, for sure. So, um, uh, my next question for you is just, um, and, and it kind of goes back to the last question I had, was what do you think the odds are Ibar and Tehran are on the roster on August 1st, you know, after the post-trade deadline? Um... It's probably not good that both of them are there. Uh, I, I don't know, fifty percent. I mean, I think I think it's reasonable to suspect that certainly an Ibar or, or Tehran gets moved. It really just depends on how their years go. I haven't looked a lot. I know there are you know, people talking about next year's free agent class. It'll certainly come in the context of that as well. Mm. But it's just going to depend really on what kind of year Tehran has and if Ibar is healthy. Yeah, both great, both great points. Um, Nick, do you have any more any further questions? Because I, I think I'm about tapped out. Yeah, I I think I am too. I think um, I think it's going to be a year where Braves fans might want to oh try I, to keep track of the younger guys more than the older guys. So. I, I wanted to ask this question. It was kind of asked in the preview with with BP. So so sorry if it's a repeat question, but just kind of where's the feeling of the state of the franchise with Atlanta right now? In terms of what the fans think, exactly. I mean, how are they thinking about the new stadium? About the, uh, I mean, this was a team in first place that they decided to dismantle eighteen months ago or whatever it was. I mean, kind of where is this? Where's the state of the franchise right now in terms of the fan base? Uh, my personal opinion is is not good. Uh, I think people's heads are still spinning from all these transactions. I think they are trying to figure out who is even on the team anymore. I think they believe in the hope of, of this concept to the extent that they understand it. Um, but I think I've written extensively about the stadium move at, at my own personal site at, at aldland.wordpress.com is where I write when I'm not at Vanish to the Pen primarily. But uh, the stadium move is is something I could go on for a while that I won't bore you with, but it it, it makes uh, not a lot of sense in terms of especially where it's located. Rationale uh, seems to be very much tied up in money and local politics. Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult for people to get to in terms of just simply traffic. 
Um, and so I think it's a fair question to say, even if the Braves do have a winning team, a, a very good team in 2017, how many people will be able to get there to see them in person? Uh, I think people are really unclear as to what uh, identity of this team is. And I think if it were a lose, if they were to move one or both of Tehran or Freddie Freeman, you couldn't find people in Atlanta who could name more brave starters than the U.S. Supreme Court justices. Um, wow. So that, that's my personal opinion, just a little bit close from my own disappointment. Uh, but people here love the Braves. The Braves have one of the largest geographical footprints in terms of a fan base and a very committed one. The Braves are uh, obviously a longstanding great franchise. So it's not to say that people are abandoning the team, but I think there's confusion tinged with disappointment, especially with the in-town folks who enjoyed having the Braves uh, right in downtown. Yeah, it feels like a, uh, how do I PC this, a cluster F, so to speak, going on, although it feels a lot better today than it did six months ago after the Shelby Miller deal and, and a couple of the other swaps. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I think people are excited. Uh, you know, baseball is here. People like watching the game. And, and I know I'm looking forward to really enjoying the last year of Turner Field. As it works out, the final three games at Turner Field will be the Braves against the Tigers, um, which I'm nice. very excited about. And uh, I think it'll be a great way to send the stadium off and and we'll see what next year brings. I don't think people are going to, I mean, that's their team. It's not like they're going to reject them, but I think it's it's going to shift the way people follow the team. All right. Give me the win prediction for 2016. Uh, you threw out 70. I know they had 67 last year. Um, I'll be optimistic and call it 68. And, and that's just for purposes of this podcast. I know Nick and I are going to coordinate and uh, put together for our preview for the Banish to the Pen team preview post. Uh, but right now I'm thinking in the 67 to 70 range. I think in, they'll win and lose in different ways, but it's hard for me to see them ending up that much uh, further ahead or behind than they did last year. Yeah, their only thing they've got going for them is they might be able to beat up on the Phillies and the Marlins like the Marlins and Phillies want to beat up on them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the race for third place in the NL East is going to be a good one this year. It's going to be even more exciting than the race for the top of the division in some ways. <laughs> so, all right, guys, I, I think that's a perfect place for us to stop for this week. So um, l- let's do, uh, as we kind of start every week, uh, let's say our goodbyes. I'll start once again with Alec, just uh, where people can find you on Twitter, where they can also find your work you just mentioned, and uh, just say goodbye to the uh, Internet. Sure. Thank you again uh, for having me on, Ryan. Always enjoy being on the program. I do write Advantage to the Pen as well as at Aldland, A-L-D-L-A-N-D dot WordPress.com. You can find me on sports Twitter at Aldlandia and uh, hope to be back on the program soon. Uh, We'll definitely have you, and and thank you so much for coming on. It was uh, a real insight, and I want to thank you again for your great work that you did at Advantage to the Pen with your uh, your Saber piece. So, uh, My pleasure. Uh, Nick, say goodbye. Well, um, it's been great chatting about baseball with both of you guys. Um, I will. You can find me at Banished at Banished to the Pen. Um, if you want to find me on Twitter, it's at Cost the Boss three four. Um, Cost is my last name K O S S. Um, otherwise, it was a pleasure talking baseball with you both. 
Yeah, thank you. You guys are both uh, definitely good follows, doing great work. And uh, I really, like I said, I want to thank you guys for coming on and uh, covering a lot of ground in a very short amount of time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. And that was episode 45 of the Banish to the Pen podcast with my guests, Nick Koss and Alec Denton. I want to thank them both for coming on, uh, clearing some time, and uh, really killing it on the mic this week. So thank you guys. Great job. Uh, one more thing, if I could, before I get out of here, I want to thank everybody involved with Banish to the Pen, the writers, the the authors, the tech staff, the support, everybody involved with uh, Banish to the Pen. We have a lot of people working very hard putting out a really great product i'm very impressed on a daily basis the the just the content and the quality of it that we're putting out so i hope you check it out bookmark it check it out with your cup of coffee in the morning banish to the pen.com also we have t-shirts and, and mugs too so if you want to uh you know get some swag and look pretty cool get yourself some banish to the pen stuff so uh, check that out as well Okay, I am Ryan Sullivan uh, at NatsGM.com on Twitter and the Baron of All Baseball Podcasts saying, be nice to your fellow listeners.